Let me ask you a question. If someone were to, to stop you on the streets and just randomly ask you, where is God, what would you say? It's a simple question on the face of it, but it becomes more complex as we, we think about it and dwell on it. There's a story of the fourth century theologian Augustine. And as he's walking down the street one day, a idolater, an idol worshiper in that area comes up to him and he presents to him the idol that he worships. And he says to Augustine, here is my God, where is thine? Here's the thing that I worship. See, it's tangible. I can smell it, taste it, touch it. I can see it. Where is your God? And Augustine responds this way, I cannot show you my God, not because there is no God to show, but because you have no eyes to see him. Of course, this falls on the heels of Isaiah 6, where we're God tells the prophet, hey, you're going to go to this people, but you'll speak to them, but they won't hear. They'll see, but they won't perceive. We recognize that in our sinfulness, we might not see the God that exists right in front of us. See, in order for this gentleman to know where God was, he needed to have eyes to see him. And this morning, as we hop into John chapter 16, I want to back us up to a conversation that started in John chapter 13. At the end of John 13, as Jesus has washed his disciples' feet and he's had this kind of last supper with his disciples, he starts this conversation with Peter. And Jesus is telling them that he's going to go away and where he goes to, the disciples cannot come with him. Where is God? And this is what Peter asks. Peter asks this very simple question. Where are you going in verse 36 of John chapter 13? And we all know the rest of the story is, as uh, Jesus implies that G- uh, Peter cannot follow him wherever he's going. Peter objects, and he says, I will lay down my life for you, at which point Jesus says, no, you will deny me three times before the rooster even crows. And from that point, we enter into this discussion uh, that Jesus is giving us in John 14 through 16, talking about this very subject, where is God? And as we jump in halfway into this kind of discussion, or even on the latter half of this discussion, what we want to see this morning from our passage in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15, is that while Jesus is bodily absent, his spirit is present in his people while Jesus was left, has left, and, and Peter's saying, where are you going? Jesus' response is saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. We're going to see this in two phases in our text, that we live in this pressure-filled world. We're going to see this in, described by Jesus in verses 1 through 6 of our passage here this morning. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the Spirit as our indwelling hope. I want to ask quickly that we... Stop one more time and ask the Lord to speak to us. I I think about the seriousness of what we talk about, the implication for our lives as we go about our life right now. And I think God has something for us here. Let's, Let's pray. Lord, we ask now again that you would allow us to understand, speak through my mouth with clarity as we open your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
verses 1 through 6 describe this pressure-filled world. And as Jesus had been kind of talking through with his disciples in this whole thing called the Upper Room Discourse, uh, we want to kind of see what he said so far. See, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 17, Jesus talks about abiding in the vine, that if we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit. And then in 15.18 through 16.4, it's kind of our passage here this morning, Jesus tells us that that the world hated him, and thus it will hate us also. So if we are those who are bearing fruit as we abide in the vine, the world will reject that fruit. And then finally, in verses 5 through the end of of the chapter, or chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus promises this renewed relationship with the Father, and specifically the Holy Spirit's role in that. In particular, uh, this starts with the role of the Holy Spirit in verses 7 through 15. It's in this context that Jesus kind of opens up our passage in in John chapter 16. Look at verse 1 of John chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, Jesus predicts to preserve in verses 1 through 4. He doesn't seem to be pulling any punches here, does he? Jesus, in these final words that he gives to his disciples, is is laying it out bare. They're they're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to take your life. And notably, we're going to see Jesus tell us why why he is sharing these things with his disciples. Notice this repeated phrase in verses 1 and 4 and 6. He says, I have said these things to you. He's telling them why he's been saying what he's been saying in chapters 13 through 15. But now Jesus wants to see why uh, particularly these people will um, reject Jesus and reject them. Look at verse 2. He says it there, doesn't he? They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. See, Jesus predicts the time when these disciples will be persecuted. The disciples will be persecuted by those who specifically think that they are serving God. And from this, we kind of see three different things. First, Jesus predicts that they will put them out of the synagogues. And you might stop and say, what's the big deal? What does a Christian want to do with a synagogue? Well, in this time, it would have been kind of this social center. And if you were put out of the synagogue, it meant that you were separated from your friends and your family. You would have been largely kind of uh, blacklisted, as it were. But the second thing is that Jesus kind of raises the stakes. Not only will they threaten your social life, they they may even take your life. Verse 2 says, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you. It's verse 3, excuse me. It's not just they're going to take away your social life, that they'll kind of keep you at arm's length. It's they will actually threaten your physical vitality. And third, they think that this persecution is service to God. The hour's coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. That is, they are so assured that God will not be anything like Jesus that they will put to death anyone who trusts in Jesus. Here we just stop for a second. We just realize that the nature of persecution is almost always from the religious circles. 
We don't often experience religious persecution from those that are largely secular. That's not the way history has burned it out. D.I. Carson says that there was a, a sermon preached before Thomas Cranmer was burned at the stake. That ISIS was a religious state that got its start by beheading Christians. Thomas Jefferson uh, helped uh, the separation, or carve us out this notion of separation of church and state by working with persecuted Baptists in the, in the colonies. See, disciples will be persecuted because the world doesn't know the Father. And Jesus gets right down to it in verse 3. They will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. That is, even though they cite religious reasons for their persecution, they really don't know God. Jesus goes on then in verse 4. He said, I've said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Again, Jesus is telling us why he told us. And by sharing this preemptively, Jesus hopes that he can preserve uh, his disciples So we see that happen in, in verses 1 through 4. But Jesus goes on in verses 4 through 7. He said, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. It's not just the disciples should be afraid. It's that the disciples are sorrowful. Jesus, who's been with them now for three years, is saying, I'm going away. I'm not going to be here any longer. I'm not going to be present with you. Well, verses 1 and 4 tell us why Jesus told them these things. Here Jesus tells us why he didn't say it sooner. I didn't tell you these things, according to verse 4. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. I didn't have to share this with you. I was present with you. He says he's going to him who sent me in verse 5. And the result of all of this is sorrow so deep that they, they can't even ask the question, where are you going? What's happening, Jesus? What are you talking about? So here the disciples are. Jesus is promising them persecution, but he's also promising them his absence. We do well just to take in the weight of this, don't we, this morning? I mean, in, in these last few chapters, Judas has left in a huff, Peter has been told that he will deny Jesus, and Jesus himself has said, I'm not going to be with you this time tomorrow. See, we recognize this morning, just as the words are, are clear here this morning, that God is foreign to humanity, isn't he? That's what he's saying in verses 2 and 3, right? These people who think that they're religious, who think that they have the right track with God, that, that really they're, they're persecuting God's real people. See, at the fall, when, when we had sinned, God became kind of hidden from us. That is, when, when man was removed from the garden, the God who walked with us in the cool of the garden kind of became a stranger to us so that now he's foreign to us, that we don't know him, he's unfamiliar to us, that in our natural state we don't naturally know who God is. As, as such, we kind of trip over who he is. Have you ever noticed this? Our world makes all kinds of claims about who God is. I'm going to take you back to the 90s here in a second. Joan Osborne, the song One of Us. You ever hear that song? 
I think the lyrics are on the screen in front of us here this morning. If God had a face, what would it look like? And would you want to see if seeing meant that, that you had to believe in the things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? And the chorus says something like, what if God was one of us, just a, a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? I mean, this has got to be the worst piece of theology ever written, right? I remember when I was in in college, we had this assignment, and uh, I was taking a class on, on evangelism, and we were to go to Ohio State's campus, and we were to share the gospel with as many people as we could in the course of a four- or five-hour period. And so I step up to this guy, and I start saying, you know, we had this uh, survey that you were supposed to walk through these questions. And so I ask him the first question on the survey, and this guy, he gets this twinkle in his eye, like he's just going to play with me like a, a cat with a ball of yarn, right? And so the first thing, you know, he says, well, I actually believe that, that God is a woman, and that the woman had babies, and that's how we populated the earth, and da-da-da-da-da, and God is actually blue, and da, da, you know, all these crazy things. I just started, I feel like he was just making it up off the cuff. We just have this latent confusion about who God is. I love the story in the Old Testament where Naaman is the, the leader of this Syrian army. He's just this really powerful individual. And the problem is, as, as God introduces us to, to Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5, in verse 1, at the very end it says, hey, hey, uh, Naaman is the, the leader of the Syrian army. He has all of this power and authority, but he was a leper. And you just recognize the weight of that in that verse, that here's this man of great authority, of great achievement, but he was a leper. He was struck with a disease that he could not control. And the story eventually goes that, that Naaman kind of grabs up all of his possessions, all of this gold. He gets a letter from the king because he's heard that there is a prophet of God in Israel who can heal him. And so he packs up all of this stuff thinking that he's going to buy, he's going to achieve his healing. Don't we do that? We have this, this mistaken notion of who God is. Because God is hidden from us, we mistake who God is and what his character is. Jesus tells us with clarity it's possible. It's possible for us to act in the name of religion but not actually to know God. You ever thought about that? It's possible for us to do religious things, to be religious-minded people but not actually have connection to God? Jesus says this in Matthew uh, chapter 7 where he says, people are going to come to me on that day and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we perform all of these miracles? And Jesus is going to look back at them and say, depart from me, I, I never knew you. See, it's the truth that because God is hidden, it's easy for us to kind of present ourselves as knowing God when we actually have no connection with him whatsoever. So here's the question then. How can we avoid spiritual shysters? How can we avoid these parlor tricks, these religious fakes? Isn't that a pressing question for us today? With a, a world full of religious claims and all kinds of people that claim unique relation to God, isn't it important for us to kind of dig in and say, how can we kind of see through and cut through with like a knife and just say, this is what God requires of us? I love what Jesus does because he clears the air. 
When Jesus presses further into this teaching, he brings clarity to this exact issue. Look at verse 7. See, we've seen that our pressure-filled world presses upon us, but our indwelling hope is, is given to us by Christ here in these verses. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. See, what we see is that as God is promising, as Jesus is promising to send the Holy Spirit, he's going to define exactly one of the things that he's going to do. In fact, in this larger section of verses 7 through 15, we're going to see two roles for the Holy Spirit. First, he's going to expose the world. He's going to convict the world. We see that specifically in verses 7 through 11, but in verses 12 through 15, we're going to see that he guides the church. So he's going to expose or convict the world, and then he's also going to guide the church to all truth, and we'll talk about that here in a second. Let's talk about what it means for the Spirit to convict the world of sin. Verse 8 says it, when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, because God is foreign to us, we need the supernatural interaction on our behalf. We need God to step into the scene and kind of show us who he is. So he shows us. He says, the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Maybe you remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds or the eyes of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The God, Satan, has blinded our eyes so we don't see the goodness of God in Christ. It's distorted to us. In fact, as Jesus uses this word here to convict, it means to expose, to lay bare. That Jesus is exposing sin and righteousness and judgment to the world. This is what he promises that the Spirit will do. And so it's a reminder to us that we need convicted of sin. Jesus describes this in verse 9, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Have you thought about this? That throughout the book of John, John is constantly presenting that the the sin that we need to be concerned about is unbelief. Christians for years have been marked by these kind of moralistic tendencies. We we don't do all of these things, but, but John is really pushing at this idea that the main sin we need to be concerned about is this rejection of Jesus as he says who he is. And so Jesus is saying the Spirit will come and he's going to convict concerning sin because that sin is unbelief. Secondly, we needed not just conviction of sin, we needed conviction of righteousness. I love how Jesus describes this in verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and and you will see me no longer. You you need to be convicted of righteousness because that example of righteousness is no longer going to be in your midst. And so the Spirit is going to come and he's going to convict of your lack of righteousness. So we need conviction of sin, conviction of righteousness, and finally we need conviction of God's coming judgment because the world or the ruler of this world is judged. 
See, what we see here is this promise that, that God is going to keep interacting with the world. When we're asking the question, where is God, we're seeing that the Spirit is still active here, still convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment, that anyone who's coming to faith in Christ is, is doing so by the Spirit's work, by spotlighting the work of Jesus Christ in their hearts and in their minds. He brings even more clarity in this next section in verses 12 through 15. Not only does he convict the world, he guides the church into truth. Look at verses 12 through 15. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Isn't this interesting? Verse 12, he says, I have more things to say to you. I'm not done speaking. I'm not done teaching. I'm not done instructing you. There's still this thing that God has given to me that I still need to impart to you, but I'm not going to be the one to teach it to you. That's what he says in verse 12. You cannot bear them now. Remember that sorrow that he mentioned before? You're not going to hear these words. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the spirit of truth, verse 13, and he will guide you into all the truth. All of that truth that the Father has given me, remember in verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. The Father entrusts this work to the Son, and the Son has this body of knowledge, this, this teaching that he wants to impart to his people, but he waits for the Spirit to bring that about. He waits for the Spirit to kind of give that to his people. See, here's the truth is that you and I, as we are united with Christ in faith, the Spirit illumines the Word of God so that you and I can understand the fullness of what God has for us in this book, in this Bible. This is what he says there in verses 14. He, that's the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And what is mine, verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So there's this body of, of knowledge, of teaching, and he, the Father gives it to the Son so that the Son can then impart it to the Spirit, and the Spirit can then impart it to his people. And practically speaking, you're saying, what the heck does this mean? So here's what's going to happen from this moment forward. Jesus is going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane. And as the religious rulers and authorities arrest him and they pull him into their custody, all of the disciples are scattered. They're afraid. Until they... They're hiding in this upper room together, and Jesus just shows up after his resurrection from the dead. And what happens from there is that these disciples become God's witnesses, Acts chapter 1, right? They become God's witnesses, and they start to share this message of the risen Messiah, Jesus Christ, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. And as they're going and as they're preaching and as they're writing letters, we're getting this. We're getting this thing called the New Testament that the Spirit is inspiring the words that they say, and God is guiding them into all truth through the Spirit, and it's recorded for us in these words that we have 
have all the truth that was entrusted to Jesus, that was entrusted to the Spirit, that's now entrusted to us. And so this morning, you and I are also guided to all truth. And as we open this up, the Spirit that resides inside of us makes it make sense to us. He takes the scales off of our eyes. He replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. He allows us to see. This is a beautiful thing, isn't it? So what we see is that Jesus says, hey, I'm going away, and they're going to persecute you. I'm not going to be here with you, but I'm sending the, world, the Spirit who will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and I'm guiding you into all truth. That might seem kind of ivory tower right now, kind of distant from us. But I think it's really pertinent when we really dig down into it. See, the truth is that when we ask the question, where is God, we see that the Spirit is native in his church. Spirit dwells in his people. Evangelicals for years have prayed for this thing that we call revival. You ever heard that term, revival? Um, we're not talking about raising the dead or anything like that. Revival is this spiritual state where, where God so acts upon a people that they are just awakened to the sense of God's holiness. They are awakened to their need of grace. They, they, uh, they push into uh, a return to moral principles. They, they find it often is accompanied, accompanied with conversions, people coming to know the Lord. See, throughout our history, in the last four or five hundred years, we've seen two revivals, as historians would describe it. We call them Great Awakenings. And there's really quite the contrast between these two Great Awakenings when we really understand it. Now, forgive me, I'm about to nerd out on you, okay? So, uh, you know, Ian Murray writes a great book. I, I haven't read it, but I've heard a lot of people reference it on the difference between the first Great Awakening and the second Great Awakening. And a lot of what I'm about to share, I've kind of pillaged from uh, Mark Dever, his summary that I heard recently. But the first Great Awakening was like this. The 17th century, England is, expo is just morally bankrupt. And what's happening is there's just a lot of alcoholism. Educational standards are in the dumps. There's just a lot of brokenness in that society. They've come through some really hard history with a lot of overturn in their government. They, they chopped Charles I's head off. They instituted Oliver Cromwell. And then like 10 years later, they replaced him. And so there's just all of this overturn. And in the response to that, there is just this moral laxity that's happening what begins to happen is, is God raises up men, men like George Whitfield or John Wesley or Charles Wesley, and they start preaching, uh, and, and they see massive amounts of people come to faith, people coming to Jesus by the thousands. Now think about this. George Whitfield goes out to fields to preach because the, the crowds are too, loud, are, are too large for it to host him in a building. So he goes out to a field to preach, and he booms out these sermons, and massive amounts of people come to faith. 
and Jesus. Really, this movement by God is marked by fervent preaching of the Word of God, by a return to the Scriptures, a real uncovering of the love of God shown to us in the gospel of of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. And the effect is that people are coming to Christ in droves. This even kind of carries over the Atlantic Ocean into the ministry of Jonathan Edwards and some other people in in kind of the early American colonial times. Now, what happens, though, is people have just really become infatuated with this idea of revival and awakening. And in the second great awakening, they try to kind of produce it all over again. Dever described it like this, that they reverse engineer the first great awakening. They see all of the things that God had done, all of the conversions, all of the moral kind of uh, rejuvenation that happened, and they're trying to do that all over again. Now, the main preacher of the second great awakening was a man named Charles Finney. Charles Finney's theology said that he had to convince people to come to Christ, and so they, they create this thing called the sawdust trail. You know, they, uh, they would ask people to come down and receive forgiveness or receive the Spirit or do whatever else. And really, it kind of goes backwards, doesn't it? There's, there's this way of trying to affect these things, and they throw these revival meetings to try and um, kind of manipulate or emotionalize people into the kingdom of God. So what we see here is, is a true act of God and a forced act of God. Not to say nothing good came out of the Second Great Awakening, but just to say largely we, we, we saw something trying to ape the first act of God, and it didn't work as well. See, the truth is this morning that we need the Spirit to lead us into truth. And if we try to manufacture that, if we try to produce that, it almost always ends up not going well. See, the Spirit convicts the world through God's church. See, we look at these two sections and we say, yeah, in verses 1 through 7, we see, um, you know, Jesus is promising persecution. And verses uh, up to verse 11, we see that God's saying, through the Spirit, uh, that's, uh, the Spirit's going to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then later on, we see in verses 12 through 15, we see, oh, God's going to guide his church into all truth. But as we kind of mash those two concepts together, We recognize that God speaks to the world as he gives his church his word. God speaks to the world as he gives his church his word. If you and I are interested in revival, our task is to uncover the word. See, the Spirit convicts the world through God's church. If we mash these two things together, we can't help but think that the Spirit brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. How? As we preach God's Word, as individuals, as we study and we know. I love in Romans chapter 10, Paul's been building this massive theological argument. And in chapter 10, he gets to this point, and he's saying, hey, how how will they know How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
The truth is this morning that God has entrusted his words to his church. That as his word abides in his church, the spirit illumines it in his people so that we can speak it to the world, so that we can bring that conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, that they might also come to the faith that we hold so dear in Jesus Christ. See, here's the truth this morning. We ask, where is God? God is in the midst of his people, but God could never be in the midst of his people. God could never be native to his people in the spirit without nativity. God could never be native to his people without Jesus taking on flesh, dwelling among us, taking on our sinful humanity, dying our death, rising again in power so that you and I are fully equipped to receive what God has given us in in his word. Isn't that true? See, the short of all of this is that spirit-filled people are Bible people. Say that again with clarity. Spirit-filled people are Bible people. Please don't ever make a mistake to think anything less. Spirit-filled people, people who are spiritual people, are people who know the Word of God, who are infiltrated by what God has to say to them, that the Spirit has encoded this into, into the Bible so that you and I are meant to pick up the book and to soak in what God has for us, that there's not really a way for us to be spiritually minded without being biblically informed. If we are to be a people who commune with God, we are to be a Bible people. We are to be a spirit-filled people. And we'll talk more about this in a few weeks, but it's a recognition that the Spirit gave us truth, and we are to walk in that truth through rich study, through Scripture memory, through uh, reading the Bible together, through studying the Bible, through sitting beneath biblical preaching. This is why we center so much on the Word of God, because we believe that God speaks to us. Can I just ask you a question? You know, you wake up tomorrow morning. It's a Monday. You don't want to do your week. I know how that goes, right? You wake up. It's a Monday, and and you're going to do some Bible reading. You're going to go, and you're going to sit, and you're going to get your cup of coffee, and the first thing you're going to do is take a sip of your cup of coffee and then do that, right? And you're going to sit down with the Bible and you're going to open it up on your lap and you're going to take in a portion of what God has stated to you. But let me ask you this question. Do you read the Bible as if God was present with you while you were reading it? Is this just a kind of an academic exercise for you, just an intellectual kind of drill for you to run through? Or is this a way which God who is present with you speaks to you through his words? And as the Spirit resides in you, you resonate with the promises that God has given to you, and you weep over the words, the beauty of what God has spoken to you. Do you see reading the Word with that kind of power and authority? I dare say that most often when I sit down with the Bible, I'm thinking, well, here's that thing I need to do. Here's that task I need to check off my list. I wonder if we might be a people who approach the Word of God with just this this category of, of understanding of fear, 
of delight, of wonder at what God speaks to us. We, we, we throw Bible verses around like they're nothing. We, we put them on cardboard signs and hang them up at football games. But the truth is, this is God's speaking to us, the Spirit communing with us because Jesus has died and paid for us. I wonder if we might see the beauty of that, if we might value and treasure what God gives to us in his word. And we might be a people who are salt and light in the earth. I want to pray to that end, that God so fills us with his word that he sends us out into his world with efficacy, with effect, with change. Let's pray. God, we ask now exactly that. Send us out into this world, so fill us with your word that we wouldn't help, but we couldn't help but overflow with joy and what you've said to us. Lord, we recognize that you are foreign to us, that we didn't know who you were on our own, that you had to show yourself to us. We see in your word how many people misunderstand who you are. We recognize now the need more than ever that you would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment and that you would guide us into all truth. And so, God, we plead for that now. Guide us into all of your truth and help us to speak to a wanting world. Lord, do all of this for the glory of your name, that your name would be revered above all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.